And so Paul this morning is going to be talking about how he is calling us to conform to Jesus, to conform to him in order to live up to the family name by walking low. Now, the word conform is an interesting word. It's often uh, thought of in a negative sense, like don't conform to the ways of the world. But there's also uh, a positive sense to it in that Jesus is telling us that if you are my followers, that, that you will obey me, that you will listen to my words, that you will obey me. And we all, we are all regularly conforming to certain standards. Whenever you join a group, an organization, a team, you have to conform. When I was in college, we signed a little document that said that we would not use alcohol or tobacco. I'm not sure if that sounds familiar or not for uh, you Pepperdine students here. But some Christian schools have that where you have to conform to that rule. Um, Scott Mulder is not here this morning, but Scott Mulder is uh, he's a pilot with United. He's actually offline this morning. And one of the things that he has to conform to is he can't have a beard. As a pilot with United Airlines, he must conform to the rule, no beards. You can have a cool Magna P.I. mustache, but no beards are allowed. <laughs> so there's conforming all the time. We've got, we've got lifeguards in our church. They have got to conform to the objectives of what it means to be a lifeguard. If someone's in need of rescue, they can't say, hold on, I'm texting my friend. They'll be okay. They'll get fired. You must conform to the expectations of the organization or the group. And often, that's just a really fun thing to do. We don't even... Um, uh, years ago, I, I used to uh, paddle a little bit, and after my first race, I remember I got a T-shirt, and it had a really cool T-shirt. And it basically, the T-shirt represents that I conformed to the rules and expectations of the race, and I was a part of that group. I was a part of the paddling group. And I completed the race. I didn't cheat. I did it right. And now I get my little t-shirt that says I'm a part of that group. About two weeks ago, this is, you can uh, Google me on this if you want. But about two weeks ago, a, this is a news headline, a, a man was running a marathon in England. And no joke, he actually, at the 20-mile mark, got on the bus, jumped ahead, got off the bus, hid behind a tree, jumped off and finished third and said, and, and when he was called on it, he like denied it. No, I didn't. And then when someone had proof, he's like, oh, okay, I did. And so when, yeah, he lost his t-shirt. He lost his third place trophy. When you don't conform and you don't play by the rules, you're disqualified. You're not a part of the group. You're not a part of the prize. Conforming is fun. Um, I, was, I totally forgot about this, but I was talking to Karen last night, and about 15 years ago, I was in my mid-20s, and I was doing young life and youth ministry stuff up in Washington. And somehow, someone got my name and invited me to play um, in a pregame before the Seattle Supersonics home game. And we played against, uh, I think it was the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So it was like area youth pastor leader guys played against the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in a pregame uh, before the Seattle Supersonics home game. We got to go into the, the locker rooms, put on Seattle Supersonics jerseys, shorts, play with the announced lights. 
it was fun to conform. I didn't pull out my Target basketball shorts and my old t-shirt and say, I'm not going to conform. I'm going to wear my own Target special or my Costco shirt and shorts. I, I freely and welcomely conformed to their expectations by wearing the Seattle Supersonics uniform and, and playing by the rules. And so we're all of us are conforming regularly to certain things. Whenever you join a group, you're conforming. The difference, though, or the challenge for us is why are we so resistant to conform to Jesus? Something happens that we put up our guards and we are resistant, resistant to living a life worthy of the gospel. And that's what Paul is going to challenge us this morning. We're going to look at a small passage this morning, and Paul is going to say, live your life worthy of the gospel. Live your life worthy of me. Live your life worthy of your family name. Live your life in a way that represents what it truly means to be a Christian. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll do chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this morning, we're going to just break this up into two parts. First, we're going to look at the call to live up to the family name. And then we're going to look at how we do it, and then we're going to look at the example of it. So before we begin, we're going to go a little bit slower this morning, but this, I'm, just, I'm, I'm into this this morning. It's really interesting. So Paul begins chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, you have to think back about what he's talking about. And Paul is talking about all of chapters 1 through 3. And he's talking about all of the spiritual blessings that he's given us. Paul's pattern is this. Before he gives the commands, before he gives the imperatives, he's going to lay out the indicative, which is what God has done for you. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. God has done this. He's given you spiritual blessings. He's given you spiritual blessings, such as that God has adopted you into his family, that Jesus purchased you um, so that you can live in freedom. He's given you his Holy Spirit. Over and over and over, all of these profound, radical truths that, that Paul is trying to press into our hearts before he gives any commands. The only way you can live out the Christian life with the right motivation is to first understand what God has done for you. Otherwise, you turn it into a legalism, a, a self-righteous moralism, where you set yourself up for failure. So Paul spends chapter after chapter after chapter 
pressing into our hearts what God has done for you. How valuable it is to know what he has done for us. One way to say this is that duty always flows out of doctrine. Duty, your responsibility to live the Christian life, always comes out of what God has done for you. Another way to say this is that Christianity is not primarily what you do, it's who you are. Christianity is not primarily what you do, it's primarily who you are. And that's what he explained for chapters 1, 2, and 3. Who you are in Christ. Your identity in Christ. And now he's going, going to come to the secondary, secondary part of what you have to do. And this is, we're going to explain this just for a minute. It is so important. Knowledge of what God has done for you has radical implications for your life. The acquisition of knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, but intellectual knowledge plus heart knowledge of what God has done for you will radically change your life. Let me show you just one example about this from the book of Proverbs. If you have your Bible, turn to Proverbs and the value of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7, and uh, we'll just start, we'll start in verse 6. This is talking about um, Solomon writing wise words to his son, imparting knowledge into his son. Verse 6 says this, For at the window of my house, this is the young man speaking, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple I have perceived among the youth a young man lacking sense. A young person lacking sense. A a young person who is naive to life. A young person who has not acquired into their heart and into their life what God has done for them. A middle-aged person, an older person, the age is irrelevant. It's understanding what God has done for you. It goes on and says this. I'll repeat the last part of verse 7. The young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, a woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, aggressive. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I pay my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egypt, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. The simple, naive person is walking into a life-changing trap. Verse 19, the key part of this that reveals who the woman is. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come back. 
With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter. The Bible always lifts up knowledge. The Bible always lifts up what God has done for you so that you will be motivated, so that you will walk in your life, that you will walk out your lifestyle in a way that's honoring to Him. So that when the commands of God come upon your life, you will understand that they are rooted and motivated in love. When you understand the spiritual blessings that God has given you, when love wins over in your life, you will be open to, to obey the commands of God. And that's what Paul is saying, that all that, that part about the word therefore is trying to get us to go back before any commands happen of what God has done for you. Life-changing, radical truths about what God has done for us. Going back to Ephesians. Paul says then, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. And we just have to stop for just a minute on this word, urge. It's a very interesting word. It has this idea of being a beggar. Of being a, one who pleads with people to listen. To open your mind to the truth of God's word. Paul uses it in a variety of places. He uses it in Acts 26 when he pleads with, with Herod uh, Agrippa to listen to the gospel. There is an intense desire an inner heart pleading. In Romans 12.1, he uses the same word where he says, I urge you, my friends, I plead with you, my friends, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I'll be... uh, totally honest with you, and as I said this earlier, there's a lot of you that I just don't know, really. Some of you I don't know at all. Some of you I know a little bit, and some of you are my close friends. But my motivation for doing this is, is not to just pass on knowledge to you. Um, I've got enough going on in my life. Um, I've got three boys. I've been working two jobs. For 10 years of my life. Two, what could be considered two full-time jobs. And I only say that to you to let you know that I'm not in this for just some little game or trying to have some like little fun things we do. I'm in this because God has changed my heart. Because God has, has reconciled himself to me. And, and there is an inner compulsion. There is an inner desire that you would come to know Jesus, that you would come to know what He's done for you, that you would live out the call upon your life. Same thing with other leaders in the church. People come, people want to make sacrifices in their lives because there is a desire that you would know who Christ is. There's an urging There is a a seriousness, there is a joy-filled seriousness that we are deeply motivated, as Paul is our example, 
that you would live out and walk out the worthy walk. Paul continues, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The word calling is the idea of of salvation, that he has called out your name. It's the idea of if someone is walking away and they've got their back turned to you, sometimes, and I do this, uh, you know, this will happen in my class sometimes, sometimes there's value in raising your voice, sometimes there's value in almost a whisper. And God does both. All of us, at one time in our life, turned our backs on God. Some of us, it was a gentle whisper that just said, hey, come back to me. Some of you, he had to yell, raise his voice, holler several times, throw the lasso on you, and bring you back. But he has called you. And he says, based on that, based on my calling of you, based on my love for you, based on for all that I've done for you, based on all the spiritual blessings I have given to you, based on the reality that I have given you everything you need in life, walk worthy. Walk worthy of the gospel. To walk worthy means that you are willing to put yourself under the authority of Jesus. That you are willing to conform, as we talked about in the beginning, that you are willing to conform to the walk that he has called us to live. The walk is, is a, the word walk is a, a very um, common word in Paul's writings, and, and all it means is your lifestyle, your daily conduct, how you live your life on Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock, that's your walk. It's not some unique calling. It's just the routine of your life. So he's calling us to live out the routine of our life in a way that's worthy of the calling. Paul will use this word in many times, many times throughout the rest of the book. He'll call us to walk in unity. He'll call us to walk um, not according to our old life. In chapter 5, he'll tell us to walk in love. So over and over and over again, he's reminding us with this word to walk. And that is your lifestyle. That's how you live out your days. Do it in a way that Jesus did. Do it in a way that that balances out what Jesus called us to do. That's the high calling. The high calling of your family name as a Christian is you are to walk the walk that's worthy of of what God has done for you. That's what he's calling us to do. To not be people that conform to uh, the culture around us, but to be people who conform to Jesus. And here's the interesting part. How we do this. And that's what he says in the last part, in the beginning of verse 2. He says this, With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul is beginning to weave back together this truth, this concept of unity in the church. That there at one time, there were the Jews over here and the Gentiles over here, and there was rivalry between the groups. There was a deep resentment between groups of people. But now because of Jesus, there is unity in the church. There is unity in their lives. And while that isn't necessarily the precise issue for us today, we can all relate to the idea of carrying resentment towards people, of holding on to grudges, 
of not forgiving people. Paul is saying there is a new unity that exists because of what Jesus has done. And the evaluation or the way to check your life or the signs of what that actually looked like are right here in front of us. And so interesting that he begins with the word humility. Humility, humility is the word through the Christian life that brings radical change to people. You're the kind of person that's hard to pick a fight with. You're the kind of person that's thinking of others. And here's what the word literally means, lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. And so when we talk about this, this walk, Paul is saying, live up to the family name of what it means to be a Christian. Live up to a lifestyle that's worthy of the gospel. And you do that by walking low. By not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. The word contrast with other words that we see in the New Testament. In, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, the word is self-seeking, boasting, drawing attention to yourself. In 1 Peter 5, 5, the, the opposite word is just proud. Always looking for ways to draw attention to yourself. Paul says, you walk worthy of the gospel when your life is filled with humility. And it's really interesting. This word did not even exist before New Testament times. This is a post-Jesus word. This is a new concept. He uses it to describe church leaders and acts. Humility keeps you centered on Jesus instead of being self-centered. Paul mentions this word first because it's the greatest threat to unity in your relationships with your friends, with boyfriends or girlfriends, spouses, families, churches. Pride promotes disunity. Humility produces unity. And Christ is the best example of this. I'm going to have you turn one more place. This is a, a passage that's worthy to underline. Philippians, just a couple pages to your right. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. If you're unsure about the concept of humility, here is what Paul says about it, talking about Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 6. Who, though he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of man, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the supreme example of humility. The pattern for all of us to follow. To live a life worthy of the gospel means you live out your life in humility. He goes on to gentleness. Gentleness means power under control. Power under restraint. This is probably maybe one of the hardest words when we think about, especially for parents. If you're a parent this morning, parents, according to this, are called to be restraining your power over your children so that we don't discipline in anger, but we discipline in love. 
restraining in anger. This is, this is, this is a very difficult concept. Um, the idea, even, even when you've been wronged, even when you're justifiable, justified in, in, in speaking out in anger, restraining anger. I play basketball every Friday morning with some of my buddies, and a friend of mine, good friend of mine, um, got into a little, little argument. I don't know what, balls in or out or whatever, right? And the guy said something, and a guy, one of the guys started walking on the court, but said something kind of smart under his breath. And my, <laughs> I haven't seen this, but my friend just like took off after him. And we're all like, whoa, 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 whoa. And it, it was like one of those things, and we talked about it afterwards, and it was like, um, how easy that sneaks up on you. This is one of my, a good friend of mine. And the funny thing is that um, I've done the same thing. And it, he had to be the time where it would be like, you calm down. All of you, I don't, the sweetest, nicest little angels, some of you are out there, okay? I guarantee you the right situation, the right context, the concept of gentleness will escape you. It will not become you. Here's, here's this really interesting balance. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you have to be weak. It doesn't mean you can't get angry. It means power under restraint, under control. And maybe the best example, here's two examples and we'll move on. First is, is Moses. If you remember Moses, he goes up to Mount Sinai and gets the Ten Commandments and he comes back and there's a full-on little thing going on. Bad thing. And he, and he has this like outburst of anger, which is justifiable because people had turned their back on God. So he has this like freak out moment, throws down the tablets. But then what's interesting is Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 calls him the most gentle man on earth. The most gentle man on earth. Whenever you think about Moses, you never think about, if you know anything about Moses, you don't ever think of him as a weak person. But the Bible calls him the most gentle man on earth. Jesus, if you want another example, Jesus got angry when people transformed his temple into a den of thieves and abused the temple. Yet Jesus is also described as one who is gentle and humble in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you. I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. This just goes contrary to everything that our culture uh, pushes upon us. It affects churches and how we want to do church here about drawing attention to ourselves or trying to think that um, that we're the, the special church that we've got, or we're the outside church so that we can be different or unique, and so that automatically makes us better. Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Are you lowly in heart? Are you treating your friends? Are you saying things to your friends? Are you doing things to your friends that uplift them and put them in a better position? Humility, gentleness, these are things that show, you can evaluate your own life, that show if you are walking the walk that's worthy of the gospel. He goes on with patience. Patience means in the most simple terms that you're willing to wait. 
that you're willing to wait on the Lord, that you're willing to wait on people that annoy you, that you're slow to speak, that you're slow to make judgments, that you're slow to react when you've been wronged. These heart attitudes that Paul is writing about are radical. And he describes, this is very important, he's not calling on us to have some self-will, some self-desire to like muster up the energy to live this way. We have to be understand the context. Before we go on, I want to go back to, to chapter 3 to remind you of this. He says this in chapter 3. This was his prayer, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That is the how-to of how we're to carry this stuff out. I'm not calling on you this morning to be a part of some self-help topic or some new insight on how to be more patient. It's only through the power of God's spirit that you can live this way. Slow to react, slow to get angry, slow to make judgments, slow to react when you've been wronged. The last thing he says that shows the worthy walk is this. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. The emphasis is on forgiveness. The emphasis is on endurance. The emphasis on, is on differences need to be tolerated. For bearing one like It has the idea of let people be. Don't, don't try to push people into your personality style. Uh, don't try to push people into doing your thing. This, this happens all the time in churches. and drives everyone crazy. Sunday morning, 10, this is our thing that we do. And what happens sometimes is that someone has a burden and they want to do something else. And instead of making it their own thing, they push their own thing on other people and try to make it be their thing. God gave me this heart, this vision, this desire to do something. Go do it. Don't try to push your thing on someone else. You do your thing. Let, if God is leading you to do your thing, do your thing. But forbearance, showing love to one another, that means you're not pushing your things on other people. That you're not always pushing your agenda. That you're willing to listen and be patient with other people. The motive behind all of this, he says, is that we're to do this in love. To do this in love. In love qualifies how we're to endure with one another. In love is the, the overarching idea of how we're to treat one another. This is the life that's worth the gospel. This is the life that's worth living. Showing love seeks the greatest good for someone else. Showing love seeks the greatest good for someone else. You want to transform your dating life or your marriage or your friendships? Apply this concept, this biblical truth to your relationships. Seek the highest good of the other person. The norm 
is to seek the greatest good for yourself. Seek the spiritual good. Seek the emotional good. Seek the overall well-being of people that you're in relationship with. Don't use people. Don't take advantage of people. Don't use people for your own for your own status or for your, for your own desires. Paul finishes up and says this, that there is to be an eagerness to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The high calling of the family name is the life that's worthy of the gospel. The how-to of this is to walk low with humility, with gentleness, patience, bearing one another, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Many of us will be traveling during Thanksgiving here in a couple weeks or so. And as you think about your own life, if you go back home and, and you're going to be with your parents or extended family, and I know that in, in a group this size that some of you are going to be going back to homes where there's tension, where there's resentment and bitterness, You can change. You can create change through the power of God's Spirit by living this out, by living a life that's worthy of the gospel. This is, this is what it's about. It's about putting everything that we've learned about what God has done for us, it's about putting this into action now. About making this be your lifestyle. About making this be the pattern of your life. <clears throat> Paul concludes by giving us the example. And I'm just going to hit through these really quick. But the example of this unity that we're called to is the repetition of the word one over and over and over again. One body. Jesus is the only way to know God. There's many denominations, many different styles of how we want to do church, but there's only one universal body. It is a profound thing to think through. I know that just from knowing some of you, people here, we've traveled all around the world. And to think, there is one body. There is one body. And I think back of the different tribes that I've been to church with in Indonesia or Africa. There's one body. All the places you guys have been, we are one. There is one unity in Jesus. He says there's one spirit. The spirit is the one who guides us into truth, who in his power calls us to live a life that's worthy to live. He enables us to do this. Just as you were called, one hope that belongs to your call. The future is that one day we will all be resurrected, that one day we will all be united in Christ forever in His glory. One Lord, only one name to call upon to be saved, that is Jesus. One faith, one baptism, the representation of our union with Christ, dying to ourself and being raised again in newness of life. One God, one Father, the core of what we believe, one God who transcends this earth, this universe Paul is saying this, live worthy of your family name, a follower of Jesus, 
To do that, you take the low road with humility. I've given you an example. I've given you the example of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Preserve the unity of the body. Be active in promoting the unity of the body. Next week, we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit and how those are to be used to promote the unity of the body. As we close in in worship, I just encourage you and challenge you to meditate first and foremost what God has done for you in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Every spiritual blessing, everything you need to live life, He has given you. He transitions then with the one command. Walk worthy. Walk worthy. Walk in a way that represents the gospel. Walk in a way that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Make that your prayer. Let's pray.